Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are in the book of Zephaniah. Now, what I want to do before we actually get into Zephaniah, just turn to the table of contents in your Bible, if you would, right at the front. Now, the table of contents is not God's Word. It's not inspired, but it's helpful in finding things. And since we're going to be in a book for the next several weeks that isn't one that you probably think of or maybe could locate like you could the book of Matthew or the Psalms or Genesis, let's just give a lay of the land. If you're newer to the church, newer to Christianity, let me just briefly describe uh, how the Bible is structured, let's say. So you'll notice right away, which many of you know, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament are those writings that come before the time of Jesus, but they're all uh, looking forward to God's fulfillment of His promise to bring salvation through His Son. So everything in the Old Testament is warning people, uh, showing the history, the sinfulness of people, the goodness of God, who God is, but always, always constantly saying He's coming. He's coming. Get ready. The Son is coming. Now in that, you have different kinds of writings. And the Old Testament is organized by these different kinds of writings. So you have in Genesis through De- Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible are all written by Moses and they all explain the backgrounds to God's creation, the sinfulness of man, and God raising up a nation, Israel, through which he'll bring his son. So it's kind of history. And the, after that, from Joshua on down through... Nehemiah, or maybe even Esther, you have that continued history of God building a people, a nation, and uh, from which he'll bring his son. So if you'd like, you could read Genesis through Esther and get a really good background to the people that we're going to see in Zephaniah. Particularly, you're going to see how they constantly break covenant with God and disobey Him and just go right along with the nations in their idol worship, um, their sexual morality, their sacrifice of children to idols. And the background to Zephaniah is specifically found in Second Kings. The time during which Zephaniah did his preaching was during the time of King Josiah. And so if you were to begin, let's say, in 2 Kings 20, chapter 20, and read to the end, you would get a lot of background to what we're going to see in Zephaniah. So one thing to realize is the Old Testament is, isn't chronologically ordered. Because at the end of the Old Testament in Zephaniah, which is the fourth book from the end of it, it's covering the time of Second Kings. And so that's one way to think about it. And then you have... Uh, these books that are often called the writings, or they're more poetry. You have things like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They're songs. They're poetry. 
They're covering God's people, but showing them the worship of God, the beauty of God, the judgments of God, but doing it often in song. And then you have the prophets, which we're going to be in. What are prophets? Well, prophets are those preachers sent to go to God's people and tell them everything that they're doing wrong. They were chosen by God. They're all different kinds of men. We'll see Zephaniah is actually royal. He's a descendant of kings. Where if you did another prophet, they would be a farmer like Amos. Uh, they're rich, they're, they're poor, it doesn't matter. They are sent by God's people, or by God, to his people to warn them because God has saved them. God has given them his word. But rather than obeying God by faith, they constantly break it. So God is so kind to give them. Look how many prophets there are. He doesn't just send one. And like, okay, here's your one chance. And, and these aren't all of the prophets either. There's other prophets that haven't written anything. God sends them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, generation after generation after generation after generation, saying, listen, you keep doing what I tell you not to do. Look at all the devastation it's bringing. Turn to me. I'm sending my son. Look to him. That's what they're doing. Now, among the prophets, you'll notice it starts with Isaiah. Then you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. These, Daniel is debatable, these are often called the major prophets. And then from, let's say, Hosea to Malachi, they're called the, kids, if I say major, what's the? Minor. Why major and why minor? It's really not a helpful way to think about it because when you think of major, you think of important, vital. And then you think of minor, you might think of unimportant. You know? But that's not why. It's much simpler than that. Kids, why? do you know why they call some the major prophets and one some they call the minor prophets? Any kids want to shout out an answer to that? Hint, look at the page numbers. Okay, like Isaiah goes from page 656 to 709. Lots of pages. Now look at Zephaniah. It goes from pages 884 to 887. A little over four pages. So major are they wrote a lot longer. Minor are they just wrote a lot less. That's it. Pretty simple, right? So we're in the minor prophet of Zephaniah. So if you would turn there. In your black Bibles in front of you, it's page 788. Although I was told there are some Bibles that the numbering isn't the same as the most of them. So for those of you, you're going to learn where to find things in the Bible uh, better than people who just get to turn right to the number. I don't know. I looked around. I didn't see any of those Bibles, but apparently there are some that are different. So 788, Zephaniah. I think this is going to be the first of eight or so sermons. Why Zephaniah? Well, a few months ago I said, I'd like to find an Old Testament book that Shorter preached through, and one of you recommended Zephaniah, and I thought, that'd be really good. That's how spiritual it was. And I thought, Zephaniah, of the minor prophets, 
He, one commentator said, is like, if you read Zephaniah, he's a good summary of all the rest of them. He, he's, he's more general in his prophecy. And if you read Zephaniah, you'll have a good understanding of what you'll find in the rest of the minor prophets and the major prophets. All right, so I'm going to just read uh, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 1. Pray, and then we'll just get some background to Zephaniah before we actually get into the, the preaching of Zephaniah. So today's sermon is a bit of an overview of the book. And then next week and the following weeks, we'll, we'll just go right through the book as we often do. So let me read chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, and here's the important one, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. All right, let's ask God's help. Father, your word is true, and yet many hate it in your world. And we often suffer people questioning us about your commitment to your word, questioning us about a commitment to a church that stands without apology on your word. And so teach us to stand in awe of your word, to rejoice at it as one who finds great spoil. Help us to hate and abhor what is false, but love your word. Give us hearts that praise you throughout the day because you have given us your righteous rules. God, we know that great peace comes to those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And so give us hearts that hope in your word for salvation and do your commandments. And so God, teach us to keep your precepts and testimonies uh, and, and to love them exceedingly. Amen. All right, Zephaniah, like the rest of these other minor prophets, we really don't know much about at all. And what we do know about him is found within their own writing. And so we see two things about Zephaniah that are very important. You have this list of names of uh, four descendants. Cushai, Gedaliah, Amariah, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the 20 kings of Judah in the line of David. If you remember, after Solomon, Israel had a civil war and split into two nations. Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. Judah remained somewhat faithful to God, and Israel went sideways into idolatry immediately, and none of their kings were good kings. They gave themselves immediately fully to idol worship, to becoming like the world. God judged them through Assyria, and they were destroyed 150-ish years before Judah in the south. What we're dealing with in Zephaniah isn't the northern kingdom, it's the southern kingdom, the line of David, the line of promise. And Zephaniah's great-grandfather, Hezekiah, was one of the good kings in Judah that brought reformation to Judah. That fought hard to bring God's people back to repentance and faith and obedience to God's word. And so Hezekiah was one of eight of the 20 good kings. So there's 20 kings in Judah. Eight of them are listed as good. And Hezekiah was one of the really good kings. Wasn't perfect. He did some pretty bad things. But generally, Hezekiah worked really hard and suffered greatly 
to not lie to God's people about what's in God's word, but call them to faith and obedience in God's word. And so Zephaniah is royal. Why would that matter? Well, you're going to see in the, pro- in the preaching of Zephaniah, he's often condemning what would be his own family. And those of his kind of leadership class for their sin. And so he's doing what we're always supposed to do. If we love Jesus, it's supposed to be like we hate our family because we will not compromise on God's word where it's called into question. So Zephaniah serves as a very good example of this. We also know so the, he's a descendant of Hezekiah and he's prophesying in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. So between Hezekiah and Josiah were two other kings, about 57 years, Manasseh and Ammon. And they were wicked, wicked kings. Manasseh actually ruled 55 years, kid. 55 years Manasseh was king. At the end of his rule, this is what it says in 2 Kings 21.16. This is the commentary on Manasseh's rule. There was so much shedding of innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with one end to the other of blood. Particularly the sacrifice of children. That's what, is, that's what Judah was like before Hezekiah. So when we preached two weeks ago against the horrific sin of abortion and how we so often contracept life, We don't have that much dissimilarity to this day that we're looking at in Zephaniah, do we? So many times you might come to a book like Zephaniah and say, that's like a whole different culture. That's hundreds and hundreds of years ago. What does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with us, doesn't it? And so God is judging the nation of Judah for their shedding of innocent blood, particularly the shedding of the innocent blood of children. And this shows you again of how deceitful and deceptive and wicked our hearts can be. God is a God of life and we hate life. God is a God who gives life and we refuse to give ourselves to it. So that's the circumstance that Zephaniah is preaching in. Ammon, so if we think of it, Hezekiah, good king, brought reform. Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son, turned from his father's ways and said, shed so much innocent blood that it said the streets flowed with it. He reigned 55 years. His son, Amnon, only reigned two years. He was uh, murdered by his own servants, and all we read about him is he abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. So 57 years of horrendous evil and wickedness. And so we can learn a lot from this, can't we? Many of you are very discouraged at what's going on in our own culture and nation. So what would God say to a nation like us? What would God say to a people like us? Let's listen. Now, Josiah is the king during which Zephaniah is preaching. Josiah uh, was king for 31 years. He, kids, guess how old he was when he became king? If you're eight, stand up. All right. We got Nolan. Anybody else eight? All right, Lucy. Eli. Surprise. 
All right, so that's how old uh, Josiah was when he became king. <laughs> Whoa. All right, Zach, you're king for the day. And you know it's not going to go well, is it? Well, Josiah was a good king. He was king for 81 years. In the 18th year of his reign, he, he, he worked hard to get the temple remodeled. The temple had gone in disrepair. It was in shambles. The, the building itself was in poor shape. And that was a reflection of the people's spiritual shape. Physical things always reflect spiritual things. And when the place, the physical place of the worship of God is in shambles, that's a reflection of the people's love and faith and obedience to God. They were in shambles. And so as Josiah worked hard to reform and bring the people back to faith and trust and love for God, he wanted to remodel the physical space too. And they did. Well, during that remodeling, they discovered the Bible. It, like so far gone were God's people that they didn't even have the Bible, the scriptures, the book of the law anymore. If you read in that time, it's like they hadn't celebrated any of the feasts, even Passover for generations. These things were such a distant memory that when Josiah read what was discovered, he wept because he, the things that they should have been doing weren't even in his memory anymore. And he realized how wicked and faithless they were as a people. And so Josiah led massive reforms, repentance. He not only like toppled all the idols, he ground them into dust. He deposed and exiled any priests, anybody who led any worship of any of the idols. He got rid of them all. This dude was a dude. You wouldn't like him at all. Isn't that funny? Like if we were to watch a movie of this, we'd see Josiah doing all this work and you would picture yourself like Josiah. You'd see yourself and be like, I would be Josiah. No, you wouldn't. You'd kind of go and say, hey, you know that, you know, like the idol there of Baal, you know, like that might not be, you know, a very good idea, you know? Like, I'm just saying. Josiah like topples the thing, mashes it into dust and says, drink it. And if you've led worship of it, get out. And the people that he's saying that to are the people with all the power, all of the money. Get out. You know what Zephaniah's wife is thinking? Like, honey, that might have been too much. This is the kind of guy he was. This is what's going on. Now, Zephaniah is preaching during this time. We don't know exactly when Zephaniah preached during those 31 years, but it makes sense that if you read Zephaniah and all of his condemnation of idolatry, particularly of the idolatry of Baal, that it was likely earlier in Josiah's reign and that part of what God did is through Zephaniah's preaching led this reform. This is what God always does. If he's going to reform his people, he's going to do it through the preaching of his word, particularly the preaching of the law. 
I need you, I need you, I need you to get this in your brains. So many times Christians think that the preaching of the law is legalism and all we need is the preaching of God's nice promises. And if we just focus on our identity in Jesus and we just focus on all of the nice things God says to us and we don't talk about the law, that God will reform us. And it's exactly the opposite in the Bible. It's through the preaching of God's law. Through reminders of God's wrath that the gospel promises and the sweet good news of the gospel become sweet. And so Zephaniah is preaching repentance. Okay, so that's the background to it. We don't really know anything else about Zephaniah except what you learn there in verse 1. Now let's just take a real quick walk through this book. So open your Bibles. Be there with me if you would. Zephaniah 1.1 is just background. Then beginning in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2, all the way to chapter 2 verse 3, he is preaching against the wrong and sin of Judah and Jerusalem and her leaders and her people. It is condemnations and warnings, speaking of God's wrath that is coming because of their sin. He starts very general, I will sweep away everything from the earth. Then right away in verse 4 you get, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. So he's trying to do this to God's people. Judgment, we read in the New Testament, always begins with God's people. Notice that. He doesn't begin with Assyria or Moab or any foreign nation. He begins with the household of God. He's judging the sins within the church before dealing with the sin outside the church. Right? He's telling them to look at the plank in their own eyes before they look at the speck in the Assyrian's eyes. So husband, he's saying, husband, before you get on your wife about her failings, deal with your own. Wife, before you're so quick to correct your husband and the way he's doing the dishes, deal with the plank in your own eye. He's always beginning within us first. And so the way he does it is to deal specifically with their sins, particularly their idolatry. You see it right away in verse 4. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Verse 5, those who bow down on roofs. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God. The day of the Lord is near. Verse 8, I will punish. Verse 11, wail, O inhabitants. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. This is not happy news. This is terrifying. He ends his condemnation and preaching against the sin of God's people in chapter 2, though, with calling them to repentance. Gather. Verse 2, before the decree takes effect, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Verse 3, seek the Lord. All you humble 
Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be hidden. Now that is very curious, that phrase. Zephaniah's name literally in the Hebrew means the Lord God hides. Not that he's hiding, but that he protects us and hides us from his wrath. And so he's like saying, seek humility, perhaps you may be Zephaniah on that day. Perhaps the Lord will hide you from his wrath. This is our great hope in Christ. We flee from the wrath of God to come by being hidden, protected, safe, finding a refuge in Jesus Christ. So this is a call to come to Christ, to look to the one promised descendant of David who will reign forever and bring God's people forever into God's presence, the promised descendant of Abraham who will bless all nations with eternal life. So they're called to seek him. Now, one of the things you'll see constantly in Zephaniah is a condemnation of pride and an elevation of humility. And what he means there is the proud people will not listen to God's word. They always question it. They don't listen humbly. They listen questioningly. They don't receive the preacher's word as coming directly from God to them. They first have to filter it through what they would like him to say. And God is calling his people to humble themselves to receive their word. What Nehemiah or what Zephaniah does next is he begins to go outside of God's people and talk about the judgment that's going to come on their enemies. And he does it at the four compass points. So in verse three or verse four of chapter two, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, those are all to the west. Canaan, Philistines, those are all to the west, to the sea coast. And so you see that in uh, 4 through 7, west. And then in 8 through 11, he goes east of Judah. Ammonites, Moabites. Okay. Then in verse 12, he goes south. Cushites, Ethiopia and south. And then beginning in verse 13 through 15 of chapter 2, he goes north to the dreaded enemies to the north, Assyria, this proud, monstrously strong, wicked nation. What is he saying? Well, he's condemning the enemies of God's people for how they have treated God's people. This is true. God's people have always not found a home here. We, in a sense, are a nation unto God. And so while we love our nation, often our nation doesn't um, accept us. The nations around us don't accept us. So God is judging them for their mistreatment of his people. This is a good fatherly, shepherdly thing to do. He's also showing he is not just some local deity. He's not some tribal, small God. He's a God of all the nations, of all the compass points. All of the earth is his. He alone is God. He doesn't just judge his own people. He judges all nations. Why? Because he's the creator of them. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This should further cause his people to humble themselves, right? Because what might they think? 
is he spends the first chapter plus condemning their sins and telling them of the wrath to come. What might they think? Well, I'll just go to Assyria. No, <laughs> there's nowhere to flee from the wrath of God on this earth. You can go west, you can go east, you can go south, you can go north. You can align yourself with the most powerful king on this earth and it will not save you from God's wrath. Look at the imagery in chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. This is one of the things the Bible does so lovingly to us. There's just nowhere to go except where? Kids, where is the only place you can go from God's wrath? To Jesus. That's it. That's what this does. David sings this in the psalm. Where can I go? If I go to the deepest depths, you're there. If I go to the highest heights, you're there. Where can we go? To Jesus. That's what God's doing. You can't even go to your own morality. You can't go to your, but God, I did this. But God, I attended that church. But God, I gave this. God, I... No, no, no. There, there's only Jesus. This is at the heart of what we mean by being a Christian. We are only justified and accepted before God by faith in His Son and not at all by anything you might do or any nation you're aligned with. Being an American will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Only having true living faith in Jesus Christ will. And so you're just getting a picture of the real awful sinfulness of mankind. There's no ethnicity. There's no nation that is pure and commendable to God. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out. Psalm 36.1 Quoted by Paul in Romans 3.18 It's a reminder again that we are to fear God. And the very thing that we as people whose hearts are corrupted will not do is the one thing we most need to do, which is tremble before the holy God in heaven. So do you fear God? Do you tremble before his word? When his word is being preached, what is your response to it? Do you tremble? Now, we know that God is not just a God of judgment and wrath. He is a God of incredible mercy. And so that's how Zephaniah ends. He turns back in chapter 3, uh, 1 to 8, to again go back to Judah and to call them to repentance and to show them the wrath of God to come. But then in verses 9 through 20, it's this most wondrous, delightful song Un, uh, of just um, surprising welcome, forgiveness, and acceptance. One of the things to realize is that a purpose of the judgments in the first two chapters of Zephaniah is to purify. You see that in verse 9 of chapter 3. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a spirit, pure speech. Kind of reminds you of Babel. The confusion of speech, the misuse of speech. And God is saying, I will 
renew you. I will come and change you. I will do a work within you that makes you pure, even though you yourselves are not pure. So we see forgiveness. In verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Why? Why has God cleared away their judgments? Grace. Not because they figured it out. God didn't give them a really complex math problem that they finally figured out and so he rewarded them. God chose to be gracious to them. It wasn't because they attained some level finally of spiritual purity and maturity. And so God said, yeah, you finally crossed the threshold. Welcome in. No, he just said, you'll never get it. We're so corrupt. And, and he just graciously extends mercy. And so it's here that we see the cross. What do we see in Jesus' death on the cross? Well, we see God's wrath, don't we? We see his absolute abhorrent hatred of sin. He pours out his wrath on his eternally beloved son who has taken his, our sin upon him. God is just. He hates sin. And we see God's mercy, don't we? Because rather than you and I suffering as we deserve for our sin, God provides a substitute, a lamb who is slain in your place for your sin. We see that in Zephaniah, and we see the response in Zephaniah to this great news of mercy. Sing. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart. Why? God has cleared away your judgments. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never have to fear evil again. The Lord your God is in your midst, in verse 17, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Why? Because of what he's done for us through his son, not because of us. It's because he beholds the work that he's done in our lives through his son, and it is so pleasing, so good in his eyes that he can't help but burst out in song over it. This is God's love. Okay, so that's Zephaniah in, by introduction. Let me just make a few quick applications to what you've heard. One of the things I hope to help you with is how do you interpret biblical prophecy in the present day? There's some who take all the Old Testament prophecy and look at present events and try to figure out what happened today, this event that's happening today is matched with a specific chapter and verse from a prophet in the Old Testament. And one of the things I want you to see is you'll never see the Bible do that. Ever. One of the things you'll see in Zephaniah is this prophecy takes place in the lifetimes of those who heard it. 
God promises to punish his people in Babylon just 25 years or so after Zephaniah comes and begins to conquer and discipline God's people. And so it was future to his hearers, but within their lifetimes, or at least the lifetimes of their children. And yet, there's language in here and promises and predictions that haven't yet realized their final full fulfillment. There's more than just a local present to them. There's a future component that's still to come yet when Christ comes back. That's talking about the coming, the first coming of Jesus, but also his second coming. And so God's people from all time read these prophecies and remember that there is a great day of God's wrath yet to come. There is judgment on the earth and all nations. And our only hope is his son. And so we'll, we'll get that. Second, please, please, please constantly remind yourselves and have the faith to remember that the work of preachers is always to tell you where you're wrong. Did you know that? Parents, you get this, right? One of the failures of the American Evangelical Church has been what we call the gospel-centered movement. There's some good in it, but there's a failure. And the failure is they refuse to use God's law and only tell you God's kindness. Parents, how does it work if all you do with your kids is tell them how good they are and you never tell them where they're wrong? How does that work? Does that go well? Hey, that's what psychologists would want you to do. Don't talk about the negative. Talk about the positive. Don't threaten. Provide a choice for the child and tell them the benefits of each of the choices and let them choose. No, no, don't, don't discipline. Don't tell them where they're wrong. Just show them rewards for doing what's right. How's that work if you do that with your kids? Does that work? Not at all. Of course, the Bible does give us incredible promises and rewards and staggering good news that just causes you to blush if you get how undeserved it is. But constantly in the Bible, whether it's these prophets, whether it's Jesus himself, whether it's the apostles, much of their work is in telling God's people where they're wrong. Did you know that? We have um, some men in our church that I meet with regularly in order to hopefully, by God's grace, they might grow to become future deacons or elders or pastors or whatever. And we were reading in 1 Timothy 5 this past week during our training time. And there it... Uh, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is reminding the church to be careful to receive criticism against God's pastors and elders. In fact, he tells them, unless it comes with two or three eyewitnesses, don't even entertain it. Why? One of the commentators on it says, because it is always the work of God's elders to tell the people where they're wrong, they'll receive a thousand criticisms. And so this is what the prophet's doing. Why? Because he's a good pastor. He's a good father. 
He loves them because their sin is destroying them. It's harming people. Babies are dying. Marriages are dissolving. Lives are being harmed. Their very eternal lives, their souls are threatened. And so he loves them enough to tell them it's wrong. Didn't Jesus do this? Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7? Do you remember that part where Jesus said, if you're even unrighteously angry with your brother, you're in danger of the hell's, uh, fire of hell? <laughs> if you're even unrighteously irritated with your brother, you could go to hell. Why would he say that? Because that's what sin does to us. He doesn't say that to just leave you cowering in a puddle of goo, but that you might turn from yourself to him. Yeah, I do it all the time. I do it all the time, Jesus. Forgive me. Cleanse me of this. I have nothing good within myself. Save me. That's what prophets do. And lastly, prophets teach God's people to sing. That's what prophets do. They teach God's people to sing. Why? If you want to memorize something, memorize verse 15 or maybe verse 17. Because as you hear the prophet's condemnation against your sin, as he brings God's law to bear specifically on your attitudes and on your words and on your thoughts and on your sins, as he tells you, that's wrong. And then he says, don't fear. God has taken away your judgment. Right? So sing. With all your heart. With all your soul. Your judgment of execution has been placed on his son. We're free. I once was lost in darkness and I thought I knew the way. God in his mercy has forgiven and cleansed and accepted and filled me with his spirit and given me his church and his word. We sing. That's the response of faith to his judgment against our sin and his forgiving us in his son is to sing. We sing for his mercy. We sing for freedom from his wrath. We know we deserve it. But his son took it. And so the prophet teaches you to sing. Let's pray. Father, help us. We need faith to receive your word as it is written. I, we, your people, often lack the faith. We per persist in unbelief, O oh God, towards your warnings and threatenings and judgments. We read that it is a bad thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and we do not have the faith to let that warning do its work in our lives. And so God, grant us the faith for that. But then also, God, grant us the faith to look to your Son and in our minds and in our hearts and our consciences rejoice in the unbelievable, unearned, undeserved freedom you've given us from your wrath because of your Son. 
Help us to rejoice and sing with all of our hearts for you have cleared away our judgments because of Christ. And so we praise you that he left heaven to take our sin and our shame and our judgment. And so God, may we leave off everything for him and may that be seen in our rejoicing before him. And so God, help us to rejoice and be glad because your Son is our Savior, and he is sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen.